This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. The media has been abuzz with opinions about Harry and Meghan, with even talk about the time they spent in Australia. There was talk also about how much media traction there had been in Australia for Princess Di's tour back in the 80s. But Andrew Mackey has written about an even bigger media frenzy in his book, The Tour. Welcome, Andrew. Jen, thanks so much for having me. Andrew, which royal tour is it? Well, the biggest tour of all time that will never be matched is the 1954 tour. It was like an Olympic-sized event in terms of organisation. The Queen was here for almost two months. She travelled to 57 or 58, 58 towns. And it's estimated that 75% of Australia's population saw her in the flesh. So... You can only imagine how many kilometres she travelled. She, I think it was like 80,000 kilometres. So, yes, the 54 tour is definitely, the, is definitely peak royal tour. And most days we get a little blurb from you about the town that she's out going to, the population, and some absolutely wonderfully weird facts. You know, things like Adelaide had a really destructive earthquake and how poisonous a funnel web spider is, and the location of the world's first cultivated macadamia tree. I love this one. The size of the Atlantic Ocean in the numbers of cups of tea. Now, how did you work that one out, Andrew? Well, it's, it was a fun little exercise with each chapter, coming up with this kind of these, these quirky little statistics, and I, I tried to make them... I thought, well, I don't want them to be dry. And I, I thought, what, what's what's a fun way to do this? And cups of tea, there's nothing more British than cups of tea. So it was, I thought that would be a fun little, fun little way to measure something. That's not the only fact. You based your book on a media fact, which was recorded, but the media being such principled people at the time, handed over the tapes of the incident. Can you just explain what that incident was? Yeah, it's kind of mind-boggling. Um, so on their weekend off, they were here for two months. It was a busy schedule, and the Queen and Prince Philip had one weekend off in Victoria in the uh, Yarra Ranges, and they were left alone with the immediate staff. And one day they had an enormous fight, and the Queen chased Prince Philip out of the house, and she threw a tennis racket at him and some shoes, and they suddenly saw this news camera crew on the perimeter of a property. So one of the Queen's staff went over and confronted the crew and the crew just volunteered the film footage. I mean, that's how, that was the media's relationship with the Royal family back then. So, and it was actually, this, it was actually, that incident I think was uncovered by an Australian researcher, Jane Connors, and it actually was immortalized in the crown. I think the first series of the crown as well, but it was also for my, for my book, it was like, wow, this wonderful dramatic incident. And I just went off and fantasized about what was happening in the background behind the scenes to cause that fight. But um, yeah, I mean, it was amazing. If that happened today, it would have, it would, the toothpaste would be out of a tube. You know, it wouldn't be live streamed to Facebook and uh, there'd be no getting that footage back. So this is a quote from Andrew Mackey's book, The Tour. The press will never trade in royal gossip. So this incident was the basis, as you say, of the fictionalised book. And, but what would cause such a display of anger? We have to go back to the beginning and meet 
the Chettle Twins. Well, tell us about Daisy and Violet. Daisy and Violet, they are two twin sisters in their 20s living living in um, Kingston-upon-Thames in London. Their mother passed away and their father's passed away and life isn't great, but they kind of flick their way into jobs as maids working for Lady Carolyn, who ends up being one of the ladies-in-waiting for the royal tour. And through a set of circumstances, they actually find themselves going on the tour as maids for, for Lady Carolyn. So, yeah, they have this very combative relationship. They don't really like each other and there's a betrayal there. And so they bring all their baggage with them on this tour and it sort of threatens to disrupt the um, royal tour itself. Prior to going on the tour, they're cleaning up their family home and they find a photo and realise that they're not the only twins in the family. There's also their mother and Hazel. And where's Hazel living now? So Hazel lives at, in central Australia out near Lake Eyre on a, on a property, one of the most remote, remote properties in Australia. It's based on a real person and a real property that's still there. And this person interacted with the Queen during the 1954 tour via radio broadcast. Basically, they, my characters, Daisy and Violet, seek, try to seek out this long lost auntie who lives um, way out back. The actual radio broadcast that happened with the Queen and this character I based uh, my book on um, is a great catalyst for them to try and track her down. Now, you mention that Violet gets a job working for Lady Carolyn Althorpe. So she's helping her as a, an official lady-in-waiting. Lady Carolyn Althorpe is a very well-bred 31-year-old. And the twins are employed to bring her clothes and everything, but they, they do have very different ideas about the monarchy. Violet is very much a, a monarchist, but Daisy, Daisy doesn't quite understand that class stratification. If you don't mind, another quote from Andrew Mackey's book, Daisy saying, it's all pantomime, fool the people, distract them from the machinations of politics and entitlement. But she does like the look of Prince Philip, doesn't she? She does, she does. I I wanted the two sisters to kind of represent almost the, the either side of the monarchy versus Republican debate. But in the middle of this, I threw um, my Republican has this sort of sexual attraction to Prince Philip. That's one of the drivers for her bad behaviour while she's on tour and causes sort of untold um, conflict. We just learn about how many people are working behind the scenes on this tour too. There's uh, cooks and waiters and drivers and security. There's the laundry and the scullery maids. And ask, Daisy asks, how do I tell who is better than whom? And I love this. Violet, who knows these things, says, fingernails. <laughs> that was a good bit. <laughs> Violet gets to work. For Lady Carolyn Althorpe as well. But things change a bit. And here I'm going to get Andrew Mackey to read from his book, The Tour, about Lady Carolyn Althorpe. This is from page 130. Lady Carolyn waved again to the fleeting crowd, then gently rested her other hand on top of Daisy's, which lay on the seat between them. Daisy glanced down at Caroline's gloved hand resting atop hers. The simple act seemed deliberate. 
Daisy didn't dare move. For the longest moment, Carolyn's unmoving fingers cupped Daisy's pale skin on the blacker. The car's vibrations gave her touch an exciting but gentle frisson. She blushed brightly, turning her face away so Carolyn couldn't see the boldness written there. But the soft contact with Caroline's gloved fingers was electrifying. After a good 10 seconds, Caroline lifted her hand to wave at a group of children assembled in a schoolyard on Daisy's side of the car. Neither spoke, the noisy jubilation outside masking the suspense. Daisy's hair fretted in the coastal breeze as her heart percussed inside her chest, thumping like she'd just taken a sprint. She took in a deep breath of the salty sea air. Daisy couldn't bring herself to look into Carolyn's eyes for fear that her own would reveal her exhilaration. Oh, yes. And that's not the only sexy bits in the book. <laughs> well, the twins are fiction, but there is Bobo. And now Bobo with her generous hips and an unforgiving Scottish accent. You based her on fat. Yeah, I did. Bobo was the Queen's nanny when she was a baby. And apparently the first word Queen Elizabeth II spoke was Bobo's name. And it was somebody who the Queen sort of trusted and was a kind of, in a way, a, a kind of parent for her. And she worked for the royal family right up until uh, her death and actually lived in uh, Buckingham Palace, very close to the Queen. And Bobo is just su such a wonderful character, great person to, to base a character on for this book. What about Private Secretary Michael Radcliffe? What's his role? Well, he's one of the entourage. So I guess in my book, I, I needed a bit of a bad guy. Somebody, somebody who essentially ran the tour was really the boss in terms of all, in terms of the operation of the royal family or the firm as it's referred to these days. And he comes on the tour and he's kind of the hard ass who dislikes the twins because of their misbehavior, but really has to keep up appearances and has the ability to manipulate the media to his will in the way that they could in the 1950s. And it's funny, I, a lot of research you can do for a book like this. So much has been written about the royal family, including newspapers from the era. And during the tour, every day it was about the royal tour, but there was never any negative stories. That was something that would not happen. Um, and it, at a contrast to today's kind of media landscape. There's so many incidents in this book that are so visually funny. Now, Andrew Mackey, I think you have another profession apart from a writer as a producer. And I think you've put your cinematic eyes to make some of these situations. Would that be correct? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, the book I wrote um, as a screenplay first. So this was a movie before it was a book, well, a movie in my head before it was a book. So as a first time writer, I, I, I guess I approached it each chapter like a scene in a way and tried to execute the book cinematically and maybe I'm glad it comes across that way because that's that's definitely was how it started and I'm hoping that's how it ends as well I mean we're, we're working now on getting it adapted. I think one of the funniest scenes was Violet in that tiny little toilet trying on the tiara and losing the emerald oh look that was that was just so funny. Well, look, I read the first part thinking, poor Daisy, seeking love in all the wrong places. And then the last part, I read, conniving Daisy. 
<laughs> then Violet, how can she possibly pursue a rom romance with Jack the driver in her condition? And that's before they all are offloaded at Lake Eyre. Oh, gee. Look, the tour was to be a glamorous adventure for the Chattel sisters, serving as maids in waiting, but instead it was a royal disaster in waiting, humorously written by Andrew Mackey. Oh, look, Andrew, just a delight, an absolute delight. So I hope it does come to the cinema. Any chances of you getting it there? Look, we're trying. I mean, I, uh, there has been particularly since it's been published, we've had a lot of production companies wanting to option it. And because I'm a film distributor and a producer as well, I, I feel we've got a good shot. Um, so we'll see, you know, hopefully the, the royal interest in all things royal doesn't come to an end, but it doesn't feel like it is anytime soon, that's for sure. We'll read the book first before you see the movie. And the book is The Tour by Andrew Mackey, published by Penguin Random House. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thanks, Jan. That was really fun. Thank you so much for uh, thanks you for reading my book. <laughs> and now it's David's turn. We can all be broken by the events and circumstances faced in life, but what if those events are of our own making? Irma Gold touches on this in her debut novel, The Breaking. So, Irma, welcome to Three CR. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. The title, The Breaking actually refers to a practice that takes place even today in Thailand. It translates as to break or tear apart. Basically, it's killing the animal's spirit. She was flicking through her phone. I knew what she was looking for. I'd already seen it, didn't want to see it again. It was brutal. Here, she held out her phone to the Germans. This is what happens to every elephant before it's put to work in the tourism industry when it's just a calf, usually about two, up to seven days and nights of constant torture. Then when it's all over, it's Mahout is the first one to bring it food and water to rescue it. There's a great deal of ignorance that tourists have about what takes place uh, in Thailand and with elephants especially. There is, and I was one of those people originally. Um, I was looking, I love elephants, and I was looking into doing some kind of elephant trek so that I could be close to elephants. And when I started Googling this, I very quickly realised that actually that was not something I should be doing uh, because all of the elephants that are used um, in, the, in the tourism industry, whether it's taking people for rides or in circuses or, or doing paintings, that they go through this breaking process and then are subject to suffering. Um, for the remainder of their time. They're, they're chained when they're not working uh, by the two front feet standing up so they can't ever lie down. Uh, the, the mahouts use bullhook, um, which they hit the elephant with. And there's this kind of misconception that elephants have really tough skin, but in fact, in some places, their skin is paper thin. And of course, that's the areas where the mahouts will land the bullhook. So, um, so I, like many people, I didn't know about this until I started researching. And then that led to me uh, going to Thailand several times and, and volunteering with rescued elephants, which was incredible and part of the research for this book. But yes, it's, it's called the Pajan in Thailand, but the process happens all around the world to break the elephant spirit. And because they're such intelligent animals, they retain the knowledge of that 
breaking within them so that they will then always comply. Though, you know, sometimes sometimes they don't and then they get in trouble and the, and the mahouts will uh, use the bull hook or sometimes slingshot them. There were some elephants at the sanctuary where I worked uh, who were blind in either one or both eyes, which is because the mahouters um, slingshotted the animal in the eye. To, to make them comply more. All of these kind of things are, are going on in the, in the tourism industries where we as foreigners come and engage and really ultimately we're the ones who are responsible for that because if we don't engage in these activities, then these processes won't happen in that way. So uh, the Save Elephant Foundation, which I'm an ambassador for, is really looking at um, ways that we can have ecotourism so that the animals don't suffer but people can still engage with them. Against this backdrop, you have Hannah and Devon and the breaking that is referred to uh, where, where elephants are concerned can actually loosely be applied as a metaphor for relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so glad that you picked up on that because the title actually is multi-layered and relates to many different facets of the novel. And also, even though we're talking about, you know, the breaking of elephants, really this book is, it's not an issues-driven book. It's actually a book that's driven by these two characters. And, in fact, it was the characters that came to me first. I didn't at first even realise that I was going to be writing about elephants at all. So, yes, it's really Hannah and Devon's story and we follow their relationship and how it develops and changes through the course of the novel. And you're right, you know, in any, in any relationship there are, there are, you know, breakings and fracturings. Um, but also it relates quite deeply to Devon, I think, who she, she is incredibly feisty and outspoken and, and confident. It's what draws Hannah to her. But underneath all of that, she's very vulnerable and in some ways her spirit has been broken and that's why she connects so deeply to the elephants in a way that Hannah doesn't quite. Well, Hannah is a bit of a novice to begin with. She's a tourist, naive, like a lot of people are when they go into relationships or serve as a tourist and see what's going on. The hostel lobby was a shabby affair, ripe with the smell of mould, it was empty but for a girl with the white blonde hair. She was sitting on a chair that tilted alarmingly to one side, bent over her phone. I was fumbling with some brochures, touristy stuff, trying to act like I was suddenly panicking about what I was doing in Chiang Mai by myself. So this is sort of um, a union of two people that comes about almost by accident. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as you've read, they meet in the hostel and and Hannah is immediately taken with Devon. She's so um, feisty, mouthy, outspoken. She really knows who she is and she kind of just sweeps Hannah into her orbit and Hannah's in thrall of her. You know, she, she almost idolises her and... You know, Devon can be quite prickly. So she's because she's very outspoken and she's very opinionated. Um, she can rub people up the wrong way. But Hannah sees beyond all of that. She sees underneath the surface to to what Devon's really like. And and I said for all her bravado, there are you know things that she's hurting about. And she really tests people to the limit. She dares them to love her in spite of all of that. You know, but Hannah really goes with her and sticks with her. Well, Hannah is almost on a discovery of her own identity, self-discovery of identity, and of her own sexuality. 
Yeah, absolutely. And in many ways, it's a, you know, the novel's a Bildungsroman and it really follows Hannah's development and emergence. As you say, she's wrestling with these ideas of identity and sexuality. And, you know, Devon and Hannah's relationship is very fluid. It changes a lot. Um, and, you know, during the editing process in particular, because the first draft I wrote quite quickly, um, but during the editing process, I was really looking very carefully at every stage of the novel and um, trying to get the balance right on their relationship at those different stages, because it does shift and change a lot. Well, talking of shifting and changing, Devon actually challenges Hannah. For example, uh, Devon has an encounter with Maya, who she doesn't like personally, but ends up saying to Hannah, you don't have to like someone to want to screw them. This is quite confronting for Hannah. Yeah, well, Devon's um, very confident in her sexuality. Um, she is not afraid to express herself. She knows what she wants. And, yeah, Hannah's quite taken aback, actually. She's, she's much... Even though they're both in their 20s, Hannah's a little bit younger. She's a lot less experienced. And through her relationship with Devon, she really opens up a lot. But ultimately, it's her. It's, it's her who does the work and, and finds her kind of path. Um, but, yeah, there are certain things that Devon does that just really throws Hannah. At the same time, uh, Devon has an encounter, shall we put it that way, with Theo, who is Hannah's ex-boyfriend. That's right. <laughs> so they're in Bangkok at that point because the novel does shift. It moves quite, it's, you know, it's a travel story. So it does shift from um, Chiang Mai to um, Bangkok and later to an area that's near Kanchanaburi. Um, and, yes, they, they encounter Hannah's ex-boyfriend, who she still kind of has, you know, some feelings for but not necessarily, you know, wants him. And then Devon kind of makes this whole territory even more complicated with her actions, which, again, Hannah finds really quite confronting. In some ways, Devon is almost challenging Hannah to break ties with her. Yeah, because, you know, as I said, she's really, even though she's very sure in herself and, you know, sexually she's very confident, deep down, you know, we find out in the novel there are various things that happened to her in the past that have actually made her quite vulnerable. And so a kind of deep love is actually very frightening to her. So she does actually push people away. She pushes Hannah away a lot. Um, and, and, and Hannah through that process, actually grows in her own self and her own um, confidence. There's not necessarily a transition of dominance at the end of the novel, but it's ultimately Hannah who comes to Devon's aid. That's right, and I think that's really important because for most of the novel... Uh, Hannah is actually following Devon. You know, she's, as I said, she's completely in thrall of her. She almost idolises her in, in many ways. And she's happy to just sort of, well, not always, you know, sometimes sometimes she questions, oh, I'm, you know, why am I doing this? You know, why am I following her again? But at the end of the book, you're right, it shifts. And Hannah is the one who takes control in a very dangerous and difficult situation. And I think that's really where, even prior to that, 
big decision that she's forced to make, which I can't, really, I can't reveal what it is, but even prior to that, she's really coming into her own. So she's carved out her own kind of space where they are staying in Sayok and, you know, she's got a job, she's working with this guy, Mick, and she's, she's really started to actually come into who she is as a person. Without giving the ending away, Devon basically sows the seeds of her own destruction. She's taking preemptive action, which she can't control. Yes, and she's forced to really confront actually what she's doing in Thailand and whether um, her actions are actually helping elephants and the community or whether she's actually a force um, that's not not for good. And, you know, it was important to me to look at that because I think, you know, there are a lot of people and, you know, I've gone and I've volunteered with rescued elephants and there are a lot of people who go and volunteer in different situations and it's really important to actually analyse, well, is this actually helping the community or am I actually interfering? So there are various actions that Devon takes that ultimately have some really catastrophic um, results and she's forced to really examine her intentions and her actions within that broader context. Well, Devon has to challenge or confront her own identity because she is strident and ardent in her approach, but this basically gets her into trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And it's completely bound up with her own identity and that's why it's so shattering for her. And ultimately, because she believed that, you know, she was doing good. And as we said, there are these kind of consequences. And in that circumstance, Hannah really steps up. This is the point where she really fully comes into her own kind of power, I guess. Well, Emma, thank you for talking with us today. The novel is The Breaking. There's a lot in there about tourism in Thailand, which is very revealing because I was quite naive about what happens to elephants. But it's also a book about relationships. So the book is The Breaking, the author, Irma Gold, and it's a Midnight Sun publishing release. Irma, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you so much, David. It's been such a pleasure. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.